Hi, I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records, welcoming you to another Sadie Classical Chicago podcast. Every time Sadie Records is a new release, we put out a new podcast so you can learn more about it and hear from the artists. And our new release for February 2019 is Ascent. It's music for viola and piano, featuring Matthew Lippman on viola and Henry Kramer on piano and Matthew Lippman happens to be here in the studio with me. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. It is truly my pleasure. So let's get right into this. Ascent, I guess we could call it a fantasy-based album because so many of the pieces are, in fact, fantasies of one kind or another. How did you come up with the concept for this album and the title Ascent? Well, the concept came first. I had been touring actually in the South with a fantasy-themed recital program. And I thought that there's a lot of beautiful music for viola and piano in this kind of vein. And I thought this would make a perfect collection of pieces for an album. And luckily, you also thought so. And part of the process was I, I also wanted to commission a piece, which we'll talk about more. But the title of the album came after all of the music had already been recorded and the album itself is kind of an homage to my mom. So Ascent has a triple meaning. It's in reference to the music, which a lot of is caught up in flights of fantasy, if you will. Some pieces are directly related to flying and it's also a reference to just the upward movement that happens throughout life and after and career and all that stuff. So I thought it was a really appropriate title because, you know, albums have titles these days. So I like it. Well, and of course, your career has been on quite an ascent, including uh, recently winning an Avery Fisher career grant. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, recording your debut album for Sadie Records. I should say your full album debut. Of course, you appear on a recording with Rachel Barden-Pine, a wonderful performance of the Mozart Sinfonia Contratante with the Academy of St. Martin in the fields conducted by Neville Mariner, no less. Yeah, that was really like a dream. (laughs) You mentioned the commission work, and we'll get to that in a moment, but I actually want to start with the last work we recorded, because I think it's the most newsworthy aspect of the album, because it's a world premiere by none other than Dmitry Shostakovich, one of the most important composers of the 20th century. So now, how did you manage this coup? Well, it's funny that you mention a world premiere by a composer who died in 1975. How is this possible? You know, I actually discovered an article in Strad magazine that was released on his birthday in September of 2017, they had found a manuscript, a two-page manuscript of a piece for viola and piano that he wrote in one sitting called Impromptu. And there wasn't much information about it at all. But I thought, oh my gosh, I really, really would love to get this music and be able to perform it. It's really sure it'd be the perfect encore, etc., and perfect addition to the album. And I actually met Dr. Mila Kovnitskaya, who is the head of the Shostakovich archive in St. Petersburg when I was on tour the previous year. So I reached out to her and she told me, I'm sorry, you can't get the music until it's published. Thanks for checking in, but sorry. So I said, okay, fine. Thanks so much. And then a few months later, I thought, you know what? I should probably just follow up. 
I haven't heard that the piece has been published yet. So I followed up with her. This time I sent her recordings of my playing. And she responded and said, I really like your playing. Thankfully, she wanted me to have the piece and play it on my program. So she sent me the PDF of the score, and, and then we recorded it shortly after. Well, I should mention that the album was released on February 8th of 2019, but we actually released that Shostakovich piece as a digital single on October 19th of 2018 for two reasons. One, I just thought it was such an important thing to get out there as soon as possible, but also we wanted to make sure we secured our claim that this is the world premiere recording because I understand another violist recorded it around the same time you did. Yes, that's what I understand, too. So it was a rush. I wouldn't say it was a rush in terms of <laughs> the recording. I would say it was a rush in terms of making sure we got it out digitally. Absolutely. Because we have no idea when that other violist's album is coming out. <laughs> I think we'll probably beat them on the physical release, too, but just for safety. Right. And to get this wonderful piece out into the stream, literally out into the stream for people to listen to, we released that on October 19th. It's a piece from 1931, an important period in Shostakovich's life. It dates, it's almost exactly contemporaneous with some of his more important ballet scores, like The Golden Age and Bolt, and also with his big opera, Lady Macbeth of the Mitsensk District. But this, unlike those big works, this works less than two minutes. How would you describe it? Yeah, it's really interesting. On one hand, you can really tell that this was... Uh, composed impromptu, <laughs> you know. He did compose it in one sitting. It's very simple. The piano figures are basically just left, right hand, alternating chords. It's a beautiful, haunting, austere folk tune, I would say. It's just one eight-bar phrase, which is slow, repeated twice, and then there's a maybe 30-second sarcastic dance at the end. So, Which it, I would liken to actually to some of the Jewish dances he wrote in, in later works. Yes, absolutely. It's kind of got that gypsy Jewish vibe to it, yeah. And, I mean, right in the opening phrase, there's one of those classic Shostakovichian fourths yeah. that immediately tell you whose this is. And, and to me, what's amazing is, even though it's less than two minutes, just how much emotion and how much content he can pack into less than two minutes. Oh, yeah, it's incredible. You can really tell that this is a seasoned composer at work here. And in terms of interpretation, I think that's actually a little bit difficult because our natural inclination, especially as string players, I think, is to layer on the vibrato when we want to sing a melody out. That's what we've been taught. It's a beautiful theme. But I don't necessarily think it's the most appropriate approach to this piece because it is on the bleaker side. Shostakovich's music, much like the viola sonata from 1975, it's not outgoing. It's kind of inwardly pained. When Henry and I were discussing the interpretation, we made an effort to bring that out rather than just slapping on a romantic sound. I think that's a good point. I wouldn't say romantic, but I would say expressive. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So let's actually hear that performance now. Here is Dmitry Shostakovich's Impromptu for Viola and Piano, Opus 33, in its world premiere performance, on record by Matthew Lippmann, Viola, and Henry Kramer, Piano.
We just heard a world premiere on record by Dmitry Shostakovich, his impromptu for viola and piano, Opus 33, performed by Matthew Lippman, my guest on this podcast, along with Henry Kramer. And this is on the new Sadie Records album, Ascent, music for viola and piano. The next piece I want to discuss, of course, is the piece you commissioned for this album, titled Metamorphose, and it's from Chicago composer, I'm happy to say, Clarissa Saad, originally from Brazil. How and why did you choose to commission this piece, and why from Clarice in particular? First of all, this process was amazing. I'm totally in love with the process of finding a composer, seeing the piece written, and then working on it with a composer. It's been incredibly gratifying. And I guess I should say that the process first started, I was playing on a cruise, actually, with the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center, and I became really good friends with this wonderful couple, Amanda and Francis, from Australia, Amanda Reed and Francis Wood. And they asked me, what's out there in terms of viola solo? Like, what can you do as a viola soloist, just out of interest? And I said, you know what? We're trying to figure that out. I don't know, a little bit for sure, but I mentioned to them that commissioning new music was something that I'd like to get into in the future. And without asking for anything specifically, they offered to be my patrons for commissioning projects. So that's how it first started. It was incredibly generous from them. And I actually heard of Clarice Assad from you, Jim, for the first time. We had started discussing pieces to go on the album. Jim suggested I listen to Clarice's music. I had been Googling many composers, of course, listening to a lot of different composers, people who live in Brooklyn, people who live in Europe, all different kinds. And I actually fell instantly in love with Clarice's music. I heard a piece of hers called Dreamscapes that Nadja Salerno Sonnenberg performed with the New Century Chamber Orchestra. And I was like, wow, I really have to go with this wonderful composer. So I asked her to write a fantasy piece and we met and we got along super well and she wanted to know about my relationship with my mom and she took it really to heart and I think I couldn't be more happy with how this piece turned out. We gave the world premiere performance of it on November 29th in Lincoln Center and it was incredibly well received. I was so happy. It's been a blast to work on. Very interesting. Now, the concept of metamorphose has to do, well, with a metamorphosis, and this was a metaphor, I think, for dealing with grief. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure, yes. I think Clarice was really touched by the story and the homage that I wanted to make for my mom. So she thought of this theme of one movement being kind of the processes of grief and the second movement being a celebration of life. And I think she did a really beautiful job. The first movement, it definitely fits into a fantasy theme because it's almost like the listener is in a dream world discovering very intense and varied emotions almost on every new step. The characters switch from one to another incredibly quickly. And that was actually the challenge with trying to make an interpretation of this piece. How do you time something in a way that makes sense, that's changing constantly and evolving constantly? It was really a fun experience and process. And the second movement, it references the grief themes, if you will, but in a a kind of much more accepting way. 
and then it celebrates life and freedom with a dance, Dance of the Butterflies. Right. So, yeah, in fact, that Portuguese title is Danças das Borboletas, or Dance of the Butterflies. This is the culmination of this metamorphosis idea. Can you describe just a little bit programmatically what's going on in the music and how you bring that out in your performance? And then we'll hear an excerpt. Sure. In the dance, it begins in the vein of the first movement, still kind of grief-stricken. There are low drones in the viola, and the piano bangs out this like fate motive that we heard from the first movement. And it transforms and gets more romantic, a little bit more accepting. Yeah, and I think the interpretation for the dance was really just how do we make this as celebratory as possible? Clarice writes a lot of 5-16 and 5-8 rhythms, which for Henry and I, me in particular, were (laughs) kind of challenging to embody. But we tried our best, and you bring out the accents, and you try to have a Brazilian flair to it. I should note that next month we're releasing an album with the Chicago Sinfonietta that includes a Clarice piece with lots of mixed meters like that. So oh, if you wonderful. Think that's challenging for viola and piano. Imagine what an orchestra and conductor have to deal with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I... It all worked out, but there were definitely <laughs> challenges. Anyway, let's hear an excerpt now from that Dance of the Butterflies second movement of Clarice Assad's Metamorphose.
That was an excerpt from Danza das Borboletas, or Dance of the Butterflies, the second movement of Clarissa Saad's Metamorphose, newly commissioned work for this Ascent album project with violist Matthew Lippmann and pianist Henry Kramer, who you just heard perform it. So now that we've discussed the Shostakovich world premiere and the newly commissioned work, let's go through the rest of the works in the album in, in album order. So the disc opens with a fantasy by York Bowen. So what do you like about this piece? I know you were particularly interested in having it be first on the album. Why did you choose it? Actually, York Bowen is one of quite a few composers who lived in the early 20th century in England who wrote music for viola. Not a lot of them are well-known to normal classical music audiences, but all beloved by violists, of course. And I've played a lot of Bowen's music, and this fantasy is, I think, by far my favorite. I think it's super well-crafted, and I really feel like Henry and I got the gist of it, if you know what I mean. Bowen was called the English Rachmaninoff in his day, so it's definitely kind of heart-on-sleeve, old-world romanticism with an English twist at its best. It's a really fun piece that, like the Assad, discovers new characters and emotions rather than presenting them, which is why I guess it's a fantasy. So the piece is titled Fantasy, and that's spelled P-H-A-N-T-A-S-Y. Let's hear an excerpt from it right now. Thank you. 
That was an excerpt from English composer York Bowen's Fantasy, P-H-A-N-T-S-Y, for viola and piano, Opus 54, as performed by Matthew Lipman Viola and Henry Kramer Piano on their new Sadie album, Ascent. It's Matthew's full album debut recording, and it's available on Sadie Records' website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. O-R-G, and of course, anywhere else albums are sold, downloaded, streamed, you name it. So I hope you'll check this out. So on this album, after the Bowen and Assad works, come the closest thing to a repertoire piece on the album. And this is Robert Schumann's piece, Marchen Builder, which translates as Fairy Tale Pictures, which is a bit of an oddly worded title. What does this say about Schumann's intention in these pieces and how do they fit with your fantasy theme? It's a good question, and I can only offer my best guess. I know that Schumann actually intended for his career to be in literature. He wanted to be an author, and he actually did work as a music critic for a long time. So he's got that literary mind. I don't think that each fairy tale picture, if you will, each movement is based on a specific fable, but I do think that they're meant to evoke that kind of vibe. They're definitely whimsical and impetuous and a standard for viola repertoire, and I think this album wouldn't be complete without them. Before we listen to a movement, Schumann is very well known, of course, as a composer of works for solo and piano and piano and ensembles and also one of the best-loved piano concertos ever written. So this might be a good time to talk about your duo partner, pianist Henry Kramer, and your musical relationship with him. Absolutely. Henry and I love playing together We've been playing together now for about six years. The first time we played together was in Chicago, actually at Ravinia, the Staines Institute, run by Miriam Freed. But we actually met before that. I don't think he remembers. I was entering Juilliard as a freshman, and you have to take a piano exam for a secondary piano class. And Henry was the proctor for that. And I remember being so nervous to play my Bach invention for him <laughs> because I thought he was so intimidating, but I don't think he remembers that. <laughs> <laughs> and so what was it like working with him on this album? Oh, it was a dream come true, especially for a project that's so meaningful. You really want to work with somebody who you trust musically. And we definitely had differences and disagreements, but... It's really, really refreshing to work with somebody who comes with a point of view and the ability to express it all the time. So it's been a huge pleasure developing musical relationship with him and interpretations of these amazing pieces. Wonderful. Let's hear a movement of the piece, which is in four movements. It's a late work. It's Schumann's Opus 113. We're going to hear the last movement, the title or tempo marking is in German, so I'm going to let you take a crack at it, Matt. This movement is Langsam mit melancholischem Ausdruck. I have no idea if that's the right pronunciation. That sounds pretty good to me. And, of course, obviously one can tell that means slow and melancholy. And it's a very, very beautiful melody. Uh, what would you like to say about it before we hear it? Absolutely. It really reminds me of a lullaby. What's interesting is the piano and viola are playing almost exclusively in sixths, no one knows which voice is primary. And that's always up for debate. And I think it changes. I like to listen out for which role is primary and who takes the lead at any given time. So this is the fourth movement of Robert Schumann's fairy tale pictures as performed by Matthew Lippmann and Henry Kramer. 
We just heard the slow fourth movement of Robert Schumann's Four Marchenbilder, or Fairy Tale Pictures, Opus 113, as performed by violist Matthew Lipman and pianist Henry Kramer from their album Ascent, which is all music for viola and piano except for one piece for solo viola, which we're going to hear next. But before we discuss this piece, this might be a good time to talk about the instrument itself. So can you tell us a little bit about your viola, its qualities, and how you obtained it? Sure. I am playing on a 1700 Gofriller viola, which is extraordinarily generously loaned through the Rachel Barton Pine Foundation. Obviously, being from Chicago, I grew up idolizing Rachel because she is a huge public figure and an amazing artist. And when I was in high school, I studied with her former teachers, the Vemoses, and somehow we got to know each other. I was the recipient of a grant education grant from her foundation as well when I was maybe 15 years old. And so the story about me obtaining this amazing viola goes as the following. I had recently just won, I think, three competitions in a row. And I don't even know how. I was very lucky. And I had to perform three concertos in a row in the spring. And I was 18 years old. It was my senior year of high school. And the previous recipient of the Gofriller had just returned it. And Rachel got word that I had to play these concertos and offered to lend it to me for three months so that I can play these concertos. Obviously, having an antique instrument of this caliber helps tremendously with tone colors and projection, et cetera. So it was extremely generous of her to offer it to me. Of course, I fell in love with it, and I didn't want to give it back. And she said, well, you're only 18. I don't know if... I'm going to allow you to keep it long term. So I pleaded and I tried to prove how mature I was. And actually, at the time, I was a student at the Perlman Music Program. And Itzhak Perlman heard me play the viola and said, oh, Matthew, what is that? It sounds great. And I was like, wow, I should get Itzhak Perlman to tell Rachel (laughs) to lend me this viola long term. And he did. And she did. (laughs) And I've had it now for eight years. That's a wonderful story. It's actually a little like the story of how Rachel got to keep her violin on long-term loan. She has a Guarneri del Gesù, of course, the ex-soldat from 1742. And that was originally loaned to her so she could record the Brahms and Joachim violin concertos for Sadie Records. And the patron liked the recording so much that he said, okay, you can keep it. That's amazing. Uh, (laughs) And by the way, those of you who don't know the work of Rachel Barton Pines Foundation, Rachel, of course, being one of the most prolific artists on CD Records with some 20 recordings now, you should really check it out online. They do some amazing work, not only the instrument loan program, but so much work with young players and also, as we've discussed on an earlier podcast, creating the String Students Library of Music of Black Composers, a really fascinating project that you'll want to read about. But getting back to this recording, (laughs) so as I said, the next work is for solo viola. It's Garth Knox's Fuga Libre. What a great title. Why did you choose this work, and how free is this fugue? Sure. I chose this work because I love it. I first learned it, I think, actually right after I graduated from Juilliard. But I remember a lot of my classmates at the time were preparing for the Tokyo viola competition, And this was actually the piece that was the commission work for that competition. So I heard a lot of my classmates performing it in their preparation, and I thought, wow, this is an amazing piece. So 
I thought I really have to learn this myself. I think the title Fuga Libre is kind of play on words. It is more or less a fugue, at least it starts that way, but it also has a double meaning and means free flight. It's in three sections, the first of which is kind of a deconstructed fugue. You can definitely hear the elements of new voices entering, but it doesn't stay Bachian in nature for long. And it goes through a middle section with extended harmonic techniques, a lot of which sound like feedback from an electric guitar, which I think is just wildly cool. And then the last section is definitely where it takes flight. Of course, that fits into the theme of the album. And it's just kind of rock and roll, and I love performing it. Awesome. Well, let's hear an excerpt right now from Fuga Libre by Garth Knox. Thank you. 
And that was an excerpt from Fuga Libre, a piece by Garth Knox for solo viola. And the violist was Matthew Lipman, and it comes from his new Sadie Records album, Ascent. You can find that album on CDRecords.org, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org, or anywhere. CDs are sold, downloads are sold, streams are streamed. It, it's all <laughs> over. Um, the really official release date, February 8th, 2019. So let's get to the final work on the album, which is Hollywood composer Franz Waxman's Carmen Fantasy. And this is one of the great showpieces for violin. So now, why did you decide to become the first person to record it on viola? Well, I'm dumb and ambitious, first of all. (laughs) Second of all, Carmen herself is a mezzo. So I've always thought these Carmen fantasies that are so popular on violin should be attempted on viola. And actually, there is a kind of arrangement of Waxman's fantasy that was done by Michael Kugel for viola, but he changes it completely. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to attempt to play the original version, which was composed for, of course, the great Yasha Heifetz. Yeah, so I play it on viola and get that soulful kind of deep sound that a mezzo should have. What were the particular challenges of doing it on viola versus violin? First of all, a lot of our repertoire does not feature the kind of extended techniques that a lot of repertoire does for the violin. Like... Paganini Caprices, for example. There are all sorts of thirds and sixths and double stops and string crossings and arpeggios and harmonics and stuff that we don't often play. And so that obviously is a challenge. And of course, the viola itself speaks much slower than a violin. I personally feel that that's what gives it its special and beautiful dark sound. Yeah, playing virtuosic violin music is definitely a challenge, but I have to say, After recording that, I feel like I just got better at viola instantly. It was like really an incredible learning process, too. So you didn't miss not having an E string? I guess that's up to the listener to decide. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, as a player. Oh, you know, I've never actually played violin. I started on viola, so I've I've never missed the E string, if you will. And, And in fact, some of the lower register parts of the piece, I actually do play up on the C string, which is the lowest string of the viola that the violin does not have. So you are getting a completely different view of the piece. Well, that's actually interesting in itself, because I think most violists at least start on violin. So how did you happen to choose viola right off the bat? Well, I started in the suburbs of Chicago in public school, actually. And my singular goal was to play trumpet, which was offered in fifth grade. I thought I should get a head start, and I was kind of bored in school, so I took up orchestra, which was offered in fourth grade, planning on switching in fifth grade to the trumpet, and so I didn't really care which string instrument, and the director said, well, if you don't really have a preference, then you should play viola, because no one ever picks viola. I remember very clearly, it was about one week when I decided, forget trumpet, and this is what I'm doing the rest of my life. I fell in love with it instantaneously. Wow, that's a great story. So before we hear an excerpt, what is it you particularly like about Waxman's treatment of Bizet's score? Sure. Well, as you said, Waxman was a Hollywood composer. It sounds like that. He kind of throws in the kitchen sink. It's got a little bit of everything. And what I particularly like about this version versus, say, the Sarasate fantasy on themes of Carmen 
is the transitions that Waxman actually composed himself from one aria to another. I think they're really successful and really inventive, and he throws in those bluesy Hollywood chords every once in a while. It's, it's just real fun. Well, okay, let's hear an excerpt right now from Franz Waxman's Carmen Fantasy as performed by Matthew Lipman, our guest on this podcast, and pianist Henry Kramer. We've just heard a portion of a famous violin showpiece, Friends Waxman's Carmen Fantasy, but played on viola by Matthew Lippman with Henry Kramer on piano. And it's from their new Sadie Records album, Ascent, released February 2019. And I should ask if you have plans to tour any of the repertoire on this album. Yeah, absolutely. As I said, we actually did a tour before recording the album. We're going to Seoul to play in the Seoul Arts Center, a lot of the music from Ascent. And it's really fun to play in Asia because they line up wanting you to sign CDs for them afterward. I'm really excited to be able to hand out, C- well, I guess 
they can buy them. But <laughs> have that would be CDs better. Designed. Yeah, <laughs> which is really cool. So what other touring plans do you have coming up? Sure. Well, I'm really excited to be going to Seoul, first of all. And I am also on tour with the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center quite a bit. We're doing a Russian program with Taneyev's Piano Quintet. I'm playing with Pinkus Zuckerman in Germany in April, going to Aspen Music Festival to play a concerto for the first time. And next January, I'll be making a Carnegie Hall recital debut. So I'm looking forward to it. Wow, that's impressive. So finally, as someone born and bred right here in Chicago, including your, of course, early musical education, what for you makes the Chicago music scene so special? You know, I was thinking about that question, and because I do feel that the Chicago scene is incredibly special, I think there's this kind of fear from people who don't live in New York that New York is the center of the classical music world. And, you know, I actually do happen to live in New York now. Also, the other coast, L.A., has a lot of interesting musical things going on. But Chicago, I think, represents everybody else. It's definitely the capital of culture for basically anywhere between the coasts. And because it's not New York or LA, I think there's a real sense of community here. The musicians are of stellar quality and they develop their own voice that they're not comparing themselves to other places. And it's really refreshing to see and to be part of. Wonderful. And of course, you got to study, as you mentioned, with Roland and uh, Almeida Vemos two of the probably the most important string teachers in the Midwest, and of course, so many Sadie artists like Rachel Barton Pine and Jennifer Coe and others have also come through their studio. So I think that's certainly one thing, at least that connects the string world here in Chicago. Absolutely. I remember in high school when I was studying with Roland Famos that basically everywhere I would travel to for international competitions even, usually the ones from Chicago were the ones who came out on top. I I think that really speaks to his teaching and the teaching of them as a duo. Actually, I just wanted to say that as a Chicagoan, I've obviously been aware of people like Rachel Barton Pine and Jennifer Coe, but I've been listening to Sadie albums my whole life. In particular, I think I dug grooves into the disc of American Viola Works that Kathy Basrak released. And of course, you're talking about Kathy's recording released in 2000. Kathy is assistant principal of the Boston Symphony now, but her sister is a cellist in the Chicago Symphony. I had no idea, actually. Wow. So, small world. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I love that album so much. I think she's a superstar violist also who studied with Roland Famos, and I would actually choose my repertoire. I played the Shulman and the Rockberg as a high schooler because I was so in love with that disc. Well, great. Thank you so much, Matt. This has been real fun, and I hope everybody will check out Ascent, a new album on Sadie Records featuring Matthew Lipman with his duo partner, pianist, Henry Kramer. This has been another edition of Sadie's Classical Chicago Podcast. Thanks for listening.